0: Chapter 40 of History of the World War by Francis March and Richard Beamish. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 40 Ships and the Men Who Made Them. When the United States of America entered the World War, she was confronted at once by a serious question. The great Allied nations were struggling against the attempt of the Germans, through the piratical use of submarines, to blockade the coast of the Allied countries. It was this german action which had led america to take part in the war it is true that america had other motives few wars ever take place among democratic nations as a result of the calculation of the nation's leaders the people must be interested and the people must sympathize with the cause for which they are going to fight the people of america had sympathized with belgium and had become indignant at the brutal treatment of that inoffensive nation they had sympathized with france in its gallant endeavor to protect its soil from the inroads of the hun this feeling had become a personal one as they reviewed the list of americans lost in the sinking of the lusitania and this sympathy had gradually grown into indignation when the germans after having promised to conduct submarine warfare according to international law again and again violated that promise when then the germans declared that they would no longer even pretend to treat neutral shipping according to the laws of maritime warfare the people with one accord approved the action of the president of the united states in declaring war the germans at this time were making a desperate effort to starve england by destroying its commerce and it was in the endeavor to accomplish this purpose that they thought it necessary to attack american ships the first effort of americans therefore was naturally to use every power of navy to destroy the lurking submarines and in the second place to use every means in their power to supply the allies with food but america had for many years neglected to give encouragement to her merchant fleets her commerce was very largely carried on in foreign bottoms ships were needed and needed urgently and one of the very first acts of the american government was to authorize their production Congress therefore appropriated for this purpose what was then the extraordinary sum of $1,135,000,000, and General Gutholz, recently returned from his work in the building of the Panama Canal, was appointed manager of the Emergency Fleet Corporation, and entrusted with the execution of the government's shipbuilding program. The Emergency Fleet Corporation, however, was then independent of the United States Shipping Board, of which Mr. William Denman was made chairman and friction between general gotels and mr denman at the very start caused long delay the difference of opinion between them arose over the comparative merits of wooden and steel ships the matter was finally laid before president wilson and ended in the resignation of both men and the complete reorganization of the board and the fleet corporation in which reorganization the fleet corporation was made subordinate to the shipping board but given entire control of construction Rear-Admiral Caps succeeded General Gothals, but was compelled to resign on account of ill health. Rear-Admiral Harris, who had been chief of the Navy's Bureau of Yards and Docks, then had the job for two weeks, but resigned because, in his opinion, he had not enough authority. Then came Mr. Charles Piez, who held the position for a longer period. Mr. Edward N. Hurley had been made chairman of the United States Shipping Board, and under the direction of these two men much progress was made. In the spring of 1918, the Boards themselves were not satisfied with their progress, and on April sixteenth, 1918, Mr. Charles M. Schwab, Chairman of the Board of Directors of the Bethlehem Steel Corporation, was made Director-General of the Emergency Fleet Corporation. Mr. Schwab was one of the most prominent businessmen in the United States, and one of the best known, and his appointment was received all over the country with the greatest satisfaction. His wonderful work in building up the Bethlehem Steel Plant not only showed his great ability but especially fitted him for a task in which the steel industry bore such a vital part the official statement issued from the white house read as follows edward n hurley charles m schwab bainbridge colby and charles pies were received by the president at the white house today. it was stated that the subject discussed was the progress and condition of a national shipbuilding program the carrying forward of the construction work in the one hundred and thirty shipyards now in operation is so vast that it requires a reinforcement of the shipbuilding organization throughout the country later in the day chairman hurley of the shipping board announced that a new office with wide powers had been created by the trustees of the emergency fleet corporation the new position is that of director-general and mr schwab has been asked and has agreed to accept this position in answer to the call of the nation charles piez vice president of the emergency fleet corporation recommended that the post of general manager of the corporation be at once abolished so that mr schwab as the director-general should be wholly unhampered in carrying on the large task entrusted to him mr piez since the retirement of admiral harris has been filling both the position of vice-president and that of general manager mr schwab will have complete supervision and direction of the work of shipbuilding he agreed to take up the work at the sacrifice of his personal wishes in the matter his services were virtually commandeered his great experience as a steelmaker and builder of ships has been drafted for the nation although the fact that the production during the month of march had not been as great as had been hoped probably brought about this change it should also be said that those who had been responsible deserved much credit for what had actually been done they had been handicapped constantly by poor transportation and shortages of materials but had worked faithfully and with what under ordinary circumstances would be regarded as remarkable success. The call upon Mr. Schwab was simply an effort to draft into the service of the country its very highest executive ability. Mr. Schwab's name had been mentioned before for more than one government post, and it was thought that here was the place where his talents could have the fullest play. It was stated in Washington that he would receive a salary of one dollar a year. Mr. Schwab at once proceeded to speed up the shipping program. It took him just one day to arrange his own business affairs, and then he began his work. His first day was spent in going over the details of his task with Chairman Hurley and Mr. Piez. He then received newspaper men, beginning the campaign of publicity which turned out to be so successful. He was full of compliments for the work which had already been done. "'It is prodigious, splendid, magnificent,' he said." It is far greater than any man who hasn't seen the inside of things can appreciate. The foundation is laid. That task is well done. We are going to get the results which are needed, and I should be proud if I could have any part in the accomplishment. All I can say for myself is that I am filled with enthusiasm, energy, and confidence. Mr. Hurley and I are in full accord on everything, and we are going to work shoulder to shoulder to make the work a success. But the large burden must fall upon the people at the yards and they are entitled to any credit for success i do not want to have any man in the shipyards working for me i want them all to be working with me nothing is going to be worth while unless we win this war and every one must do the task to which he is called one of the first steps that mr schwab took to speed up ship production was to establish his headquarters in philadelphia as the center of the shipbuilding region chairman hurley remained at washington and the operating department which included agencies such as the inter-allied ship control committee was removed to new york city it was stated that nearly fifty percent of the work in progress was within a short radius of philadelphia the year before the war the total output of the united states shipyards was only two hundred and fifty thousand tons the program of the shipping board contemplated the construction of one thousand one hundred and forty five steel ships with a tonnage of eight million one hundred and sixty-four thousand five hundred and eight and four hundred and ninety wooden ships with a tonnage of one million seven hundred and fifteen thousand these of course could not be built in the shipyards then in existence new shipyards had to be built in various parts of the country in the first year after the shipping board took control one hundred and eighty-eight ships were put in the water and through requisition and by building one hundred and three more were added to the american merchant fleet by April 1918, the government had at its service 2,762,605 tons of shipping. During the month of May, the first month after Mr. Schwab began his work, the record of production had mounted from 160,286 tons to 263,571. American shipyards had completed and delivered during that month 43 steel ships and one wooden ship. Mr. Hurley, in an address on June tenth, said, on June 1, we had increased the American-built tonnage to over 3.5 million deadweight tons of shipping. This gives us a total of more than 1,400 ships, with an approximate total deadweight tonnage of 7 million, now under control of the United States Shipping Board. In round numbers, and from all sources, we have added to the American flag, since our war against Germany began, nearly 4.5 million tons of shipping. Our program calls for the building of 1,856 passenger, cargo, and refrigerator ships and tankers, ranging from 5,000 to 12,000 tons each, with an aggregate deadweight of 13 million. Exclusive of these, we have 245 commandeered vessels taken over from foreign and domestic owners, which are being completed by the Emergency Fleet Corporation. These will aggregate a total deadweight tonnage of 1,715,000. This makes a total of 2,101 vessels, exclusive of tugs and barges, which are being built and will be put on the seas in the course of carrying out our present program, with an aggregate deadweight tonnage of 14,715,000. Five billion dollars will be required to finish our program, but the expenditure of this enormous sum will give to the American people the greatest merchant fleet ever assembled in the history of the world. American workmen have made the expansion of recent months possible and they will make possible the successful conclusion of the whole program. In the wonderful work that followed his appointment, Mr. Schwab constantly came before the public, mainly through his addresses to the working men of the different yards. His main endeavor was to stimulate enthusiasm and rivalry among the men. A $10,000 prize was offered to the yard producing the largest surplus above its program, and he traveled throughout the country urging the employees at all the great yards to break their records. The result of this work was that it was not long before it was announced that the monthly tonnage of ships completed by the Allies exceeded the tonnage of those sunk by the German submarine. The menace of the submarine, which had seemed so formidable, had disappeared. The most important of the great shipyards which were producing the American cargo ships was at Hogg Island in the southwest part of Philadelphia. This shipyard may indeed be called the greatest shipyard in the world, before mr schwab became director-general much criticism had been launched at the work that was going on there and an investigation had been made which resulted in a favorable report on august fifth the new shipyard launched its first ship the seventy five hundred ton freight steamer Quiskonk, in the presence of a distinguished throng among whom were the president of the united states and mrs Woodrow wilson the ship was christened by mrs wilson and the president swung his hat and led the cheers as the great ship glided down the ways. The name Quistconk is the ancient Indian name of Hog Island. The crowd numbered more than sixty thousand people, and special trains from Washington and New York brought many notable guests. President and Mrs. Wilson were escorted by Mr. Hurley and Mr. Schwab and apparently thoroughly enjoyed the occasion. An enormous banquet was presented to Mrs. Wilson by foreman McMillan, who had driven the first rivet in the Quiskonk's keel. Shortly after the armistice, it was announced that the Hog Island plant would be acquired by the United States government. The real estate, valued at $1,760,000, was owned by the American International Shipbuilding Company, and the government had invested about $60 million in equipping the plant. At the time the war ended, 35,000 persons were at work, and 180 ships were in the various stages of completion. An interesting feature in connection with the endeavor to speed up was the competition in riveting. Early in the year, in yard after yard expert riveters were reported as making extraordinary records, and prizes were offered to the winners of such records. Later, however, such contests were discouraged by Chairman Hurley and by others. The best record was made by John Omer, who drove 12,209 rivets in nine hours at the Belfast Yards of Workman and Clark, in the accomplishment of this feat, on two occasions, he passed the mark of 1,400 rivets an hour. In his best minute he drove 26 rivets. The ships constructed by the shipping board were of steel, of wood, and of concrete, and at times considerable difference of opinion existed with regard to which form of ship should receive the most attention. The policy of the government seemed finally to favor the steel, as it was claimed that the wooden type was not only more expensive, but that it was less efficient. However, until the very end, wooden ships in great numbers were being built. On May thirty-first, the steamship Agawam, described as the first fabricated ship in the world, was launched in the yards of the Submarine Boat Corporation at Newark. This was essentially a standardized SEAL cargo ship. Fabricated is the technical term applied to ships built from numbered shapes made from patterns. President Kars, of the Submarine Boat Corporation, said that the Agawam was the first of a hundred and fifty vessels of that type which would be constructed in the yard. The parts were made, he said, in bridge and tank shops throughout the country, and were assembled at the yard. Ninety-five percent of the work in forming the parts entering into the hull of this vessel, and punching rivet holes, is done at shops, widely separated, from drawings furnished by the company, and these drawings have been of such exactitude, and the work has been so carefully performed by the different bridge shops that when they are brought together at this yard they fit perfectly and the ship as you see it is absolutely fair the construction of the hull of this vessel requires the driving of over four hundred thousand rivets and by our method more than one-quarter of these rivets are driven at the distant shops the different parts being brought into the yard in sections as large as can be transported on the railroad each part is numbered and lettered and as they are shaped perfectly all that is necessary is to place them in position Bolt them and finally fasten them with rivets. Officials of the company said that they expected to launch in the course of time two such vessels each week. A standard ship of this type has a deadweight carrying capacity of five thousand five hundred tons. It is three hundred and forty three feet long and forty six feet wide and is expected to show an average speed of ten and a half knots. Fuel oil is used to generate steam to drive a turbine operating 3,600 revolutions a minute. The oil is carried in compartments of the double bottom of the ship, in sufficient quantity, for more than a round trip to Europe. Twenty-seven steel mills, fifty-six fabricating plants, and two hundred foundries and equipment shops are drawn upon to construct the ship. In addition to the steel and wood vessels, the Emergency Fleet Corporation also constructed a number of concrete ships. The first step in this direction was taken on April 3rd, when the construction of four 7,500-ton concrete ships at a Pacific Coast shipyard was authorized. This action was taken as a result of a report on the trials made with the concrete ship Faith, which was built in San Francisco by Private Capital. The test of this ship had been satisfactory, and Mr. R. J. Whig, an agent of the Emergency Fleet Corporation, who had made a careful inspection of the Faith and watched the tests, reported his confidence in the new cargo carrier. The successful trial trip of the faith led, on the 17th of May, to the government order that fifty-eight more such ships be constructed. Sites for yards were leased, and contracts awarded. The concrete ship turned out to be a great success. The extraordinary success of the American shipbuilding program during the World War was due to the enthusiasm of the workmen employed at the government plants, and that same enthusiasm was found in connection with their work in every industry on which the government made demands. American labor was thoroughly loyal. It recognized that in the war for democracy against autocracy it had a vital concern. The attitude of the great American labor unions must, however, be sharply distinguished from that of the extreme socialists who refused to take any part in helping to win the war. From the very beginning, the American Federation of Labor took a patriotic stand. Its leader was Mr. Samuel Gompers, and it was fortunate for America that the leadership of this great organization was in such patriotic hands. Mr. Gompers had been for many years president of this great labor organization, and was so often called in consultation by the President of the United States in connection with labor affairs that he might almost be called an unofficial member of the President's cabinet. Mr. Gompers was by birth an Englishman, but he had left his home when still a boy, and was thoroughly filled with true American patriotism. From the beginning he devoted himself with the greatest enthusiasm not only to the protection of the interests of which he was in charge, but to the prosecution of a successful war. He had to contend, as labor leaders in other countries had been compelled to contend, with socialistic and anarchistic organizations. During the period of America's participation in the war there were certain disturbances caused by the I.W.W., but from such movements the American Federation of Labor held itself aloof, occasional strikes on account of special conditions were easily settled the governmental assumption of control over railroads and other essential industries had much to do with the peaceful attitude of the workmen the very high wages which were offered to the workmen at munitions works shipbuilding plants and other governmental enterprises enabled the workmen there to live in reasonable comfort though it caused a great deal of trouble in private industry and compelled an increase in pay to labor all over the land in the latter part of the war, Mr. Gompers traveled abroad, as a representative of American labor, and was greeted everywhere with the utmost enthusiasm, while his influence was strongly felt in favor of moderate and sane views as to labor's rights. The American situation with regard to labor was made much simpler by the organization of the United States Employment Service. This was made an arm of the Department of Labor, with branch offices in nearly all the large cities of every state. It had a large corps of traveling examiners. Men skilled in determining the fitness of workers for particular jobs, and it undertook to recruit labor for the various war industries in which they were needed. During the last year of the war, from 150,000 to 200,000 workers of all kinds were given work each month. In addition to this, the employment service was a clearinghouse of information for manufacturers. The Director General of this service was Mr. John B. Densmore. Labor throughout the country, except when influenced by men of foreign birth who were not in touch with the spirit of America, was universally loyal, and its sharing in the winning of the war will always remain a matter for pride. End of chapter 40